You're listening to X-Ray FM on KXRY Portland and KQAC HD3 Portland at 91.1 and 107.1, streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. I'm Miranda, and in celebration of International Women's Day, we're hosting 12 hours of women-focused programming. Between now and 7 p.m., you will be hearing some of Portland's most impactful community leaders, educators, activists, artists, and professionals tell their stories to educate, empower, and inspire change. As part of today's programming, up next we'll be talking with sex educators Stella Harris and Amory Jane. Amory Jane is the general manager at SheBop, and SheBop is a sponsor of X-Ray. No consideration has been given for the interview. So first up, welcome to X-Ray, Stella and Amory. Hi, thanks for having us. Thanks for being here. Um, First, I just kind of wanted to ask you to introduce yourselves and just sort of explain your connections to the business. Stella, would you like to go first? Sure thing. Uh, so I am a sex educator and coach based here in Portland. Um, I teach classes at Shebop and at some other venues around town. And I also travel to teach up to Seattle, down to San Francisco, and sometimes as far as New York or Canada. I'm also an author. I have uh, one book out by Cleus Press all about communication and relationships. And I am currently hurriedly finishing my second book for Cleus all about threesomes. That sounds so interesting. Amory, what about you? Well, let's see. I'm a mom, first and foremost. I used to always list sex educator as my first duty, but my priorities have shifted. Um, So I am a mother, a sex educator, and the general manager at SheBop. I used to do a lot more traveling for sex ed, but I'm pretty Portland-based nowadays, but definitely still active at teaching And I also am a chronic pain babe and a cannabis advocate. So I do a lot of talking about the intersections of those things, sex, cannabis, chronic pain, all of that. So those are some of my big passions. That's great. Did you recently become a mother? My child is 20 months old. So fairly recently, but like not newborn territory anymore. Got it. Well, congrats anyway. Thank you. (laughs) So the first question I wanted to dive into was basically, what's missing from sex ed curriculums in schools? Either of you, if you'd like to take a stab at that. (laughs) Everything? Yeah. Yeah. It depends where. Um, Generally, the sex ed curriculum goes state by state or even county by county. So the rules are different everywhere. Um, And usually there is a minimum mandate by the state and then each county decides how they implement it. Um, It recently made big news that one of the counties up in Washington um, stripped all sex ed down to the, the state minimum, which was only to talk about HIV and AIDS. Um, so wow. we're actually not teaching anything. Um, at, at best, they're getting some really basic reproductive anatomy, maybe a little bit of info about STIs. I think the number one thing that is missing is any mention whatsoever that sex should be pleasurable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and consent is another major thing that is missing mm-hmm. that I think would be really important to include. But like Stella said, each state or county can be different. Oregon is actually one of the best states in the country for sex ed overall. I'm from Indiana, and even though the city where I grew up had a decent sex ed program for public school, that was only after Planned Parenthood had come in and kind of started working on the curriculum. I remember some of my early sex ed was like the kind of stuff where like they gave us all a piece of gum and we're like, oh, yay, gum. And they're like, okay, chew it. 
Now spit it out. That's what you are if you have sex with someone. You're a chewed up piece of gum. And I'm like, wait, what? I don't. Oh my Can goodness. you explain this metaphor? And that, you know, unfortunately, hasn't changed that much. And I'm in my 30s. I, re- I thought we'd have a little more progress by now. Mm-hmm. Wow, that sounds like such a harmful metaphor to be teaching young people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's largely fear tactics. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, in most states, they're not required. Uh, it's not required that the information they give be accurate. Oh, uh, that's which interesting. Is baffling. <laughs> Yeah. Hmm. And do you have any like opinions, theories or or knowledge about like why there's been so little progress? I think we have a bit of a background of like culturally like why sex education has been less than perfect in the past and is there is there any like lack of political or or other like movement forward that has been that you've noticed in your lifetimes? I think it's multiple factors. Certainly having a more conservative government in the last, you know, 30, 40 years with the majority um, of our years, it's made progress hard in that field. I also think that religion um, is a really big part of it. Um, Some of the Well, and funding. So it's like it's all connected. So like the states can't afford to like really have comprehensive sex ed come in and do a whole overhaul. So they're like, Mm -hmm. who will help us teach sex ed? And then these religious groups swoop in and they're like, we will. We will teach it. Don't worry. We got you. But they're not teaching things that are medically based or scientifically accurate necessarily. They're teaching it from their perspective which is um, not often a scientific one um, and has a lot of those fear messages, like Stella mentioned, a lot of the purity messages, things like that. So I think it's a complex issue why there hasn't been more progress made. Do you have more? More of the same. Yeah, it's a money and politics. At the last I heard, even in Multnomah County, um, students weren't actually even getting the entirety of the curriculum that had been passed because they didn't have funding to have the time or the instructors. Mm. Um, And given um, sort of the conservative leanings, they also, you know, are not bringing in instructors like, like AJ and I, I mean, I, I certainly have never been invited to groups of folks under 18. Um, I'm invited to colleges all the time. and, And some colleges are starting to try to pick up the slack. I do a whole uh, sex ed series, including relationships and kink uh, for Reed College. I speak over at Portland State. I know you do as well. Um, but, you know, by then, kids have tried things and potentially gotten themselves into situations that they might not have had they had information about consent and safety and pleasure. Mm-hmm. I've had the privilege and honor of being able to teach for some younger groups as young as 13, But those were after-school programs where it was the leaders of the after-school programs and the parents who brought us in, so it wasn't a public school thing. And it was specifically geared toward LGBT students and giving them more support and empowerment, which I thought was really great, but that was a very small percentage of the student body that was getting this information. Yeah, absolutely. Is that lack... Um, in the the sex ed field, something that you noticed and like, it was that the motivating factor that for each of you starting to work in that field, or or maybe maybe you have different answers, but I'm kind of wondering if <laughs> if this was like your inspiration, you noticed something was missing and and you wanted to step up, or if it was something else. 
I mean, yes and no. It has it has driven what some of my curriculum now is. I mean, most of my class offerings, most of my coaching is simply based on what things people have asked for. You know, when I teach a class about anatomy and hear from people that they didn't know how their body works and they ask a particular set of questions and then I sort of realize what people don't know and then develop a new class to sort of fill in those gaps. But as I teach primarily adults, you know, I, I meet with people. I just did a private class actually in someone's home of um, women in their 40s and 50s. And I talked about anatomy and the anatomy of the clitoral complex. And no one in the room knew it already. You know, I brought out an anatomical model and nobody had seen it. Totally. I hadn't seen that mm-hmm. the anatomical model that you're talking about until like a couple of years ago, maybe. And I'm yeah. almost 24. Yeah, I mean, most people have, haven't. Even if you're getting yeah. anatomy in school, you're not getting that, again, because that would require caring about pleasure. Exactly. <laughs> um, so people aren't seeing that. So I'm definitely seeing the impact of that lack of sex ed um, by what adults are telling me when they end up rolling into one of my classes. Um, so that absolutely, um, it impassions me to keep doing what I'm doing. It's not the full story of how I started doing it, which the short version would be that it was an accident, um, but it's big part of why I keep doing what I'm doing and how I drive what content I'm developing at any particular time. It's just always based on the questions that people are asking me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my story is fairly similar. I come from a background of going to grad school for becoming a therapist. And when I was in my internship, um, I started this group because we were all required to start some sort of group at the clinic where we were. And so my group was called Moxie, which was for teen girls. Um, And at the time, we opened it up to anyone who was femme-identifying and non-binary because there were a few clients who fit that description. So we got everybody into this group together, Moxie, and there was like 12 of them between the ages of 14 and 18, which is a huge age difference, even though it's only four years, it's a big age difference in terms of maturity levels. A lot happens in those years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but at the end of every session, like we'd have kind of a, a focus group. And then at the end of the whole series, we they got to vote what they wanted the topic to be. And at the end of every session, they got to put questions in my box. And then the next time around, I would, you know, have thought about them and re- read the answers. And almost every time someone put a sex question in my box. And then when I asked them, hey, you know, our final session's coming up in a couple weeks. What do we want the topic to be? They're all like, sex. Can we Can we all please talk about sex? Can you? Will you talk about sex with us? And I'm like, oh, okay. And so we spent an entire hour just like answering sex questions. And that was my big aha moment. They're like, nobody will talk this honestly to us in our lives. Like we ask our parents, we ask our teachers, and they're just like, they look scared and they mm-hmm. push us away. And I was the only person who was willing to talk with them. So I think that was a big moment for me being like, oh, not everybody is able to just be frank and casual. And it's not like I'm not serious when I talk about sex, but it's just like I'm able to do it without feeling all that inner panic that some people get, which is easier to do with other people's children, definitely, because mm-hmm. um, you don't have all that story wrapped around it and all the worry wrapped around it. But that was when I shifted away from being a therapist and into being a sex educator was at the end of that group because I realized that was where I wanted to be and where the world needed me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that really makes me think of how a lot of kids will end up learning about sex through like the in- like things they find on the internet. And mm-hmm. like we all know that there's a lot of porn out there on the internet and how that can just be kind of a, a skewed way to learn about it. 
Um, something I've been sort of following more recently is the idea of like raising sex positive children, which I think mm -hmm. is a concept people might shy away from a little bit because they're like, why would you say sex and children in the same sentence? Like those don't go together. But do you have anything to say about like why it is important to raise sex positive children? I have too much to say about that. I'm like, <laughs> the, the rest yeah, of the show <laughs> will be what that is. I mean, if sex is about more than just the acts and the body parts being smushed together, which it is. Mm -hmm. It's about communication. It's about relationships. It's about consent. It's about pleasure. Those are all things that I strongly believe that all humans need some practice on and need knowledge in um, and want to be, I want to empower people in those ways. So I'm definitely raising my child to be sex positive. We're talking about consent already, which is you know, with a 20-month-old, it's just kind of like, mama's gonna uh, open your diaper now, okay? I've got to wipe this crease right here because you've got some poop there, you know? Just like talking through the process instead of just doing it so they know why I'm touching their body. Mm -hmm. And then even small things like, which color pants do you want to wear today? And hold it out in front of them. Be like, good job, you made a choice. You get to make choices about your body. You know, like keeping it really simple and starting it really early so that it's not this difficult thing that they have to navigate through later in life when they're like hormones are raging and when they're getting into relationships with other youth and everybody's confused and there's all these mixed messages online. And so I'm like really trying from a very young age to introduce all of those things. And I think that is going to help my child have better life skills in general, better relationship skills. Mm -hmm. I was at, um, guest speaking at a class in Portland State earlier this week, and it sort of turned into what you'd been talking about, AJ, when people realized they could ask sex questions. We went entirely off topic of the class, and people were just asking every question they had about sex, and a lot of the questions were about how to talk to kids about sex or specific questions about kids in their lives. And you're absolutely right that people get freaked out if children and sex is in the same sentence. We want to act like no one is a sexual being before they turn 18, which simply isn't true. Um, but there's always an age appropriate version, you know, just like what you're saying, like talking about what you're doing with somebody's body. If we don't treat someone like they have bodily autonomy until they're 18, they're not suddenly going to know how to use their words if they've been forced to give hugs, forced to give kisses, you know, forced to endure anything that they don't want to. Um, so just getting comfortable with having that be a daily part of lives. But that's really tricky when we have, you know, a generation of people who didn't get any of that. You don't miraculously know how to do those things for, you know, the folks coming after you. Yeah. And it's such a sort of like compounding, like complex factors when talking about teaching children bodily autonomy and then like raising children as girls or women, like folks who are raised as women often like have different conceptions of their own bodily autonomy. Mm -hmm. And the idea of changing that um, from like infanthood seems pretty revolutionary and amazing to me. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, I have kind of a controversial opinion about assigning, you know, sex or assigning gender at birth. I did not do that for my child, which most people hate me about it. I get a lot of internet hate about it. Um, but for me, that was part of it, not because of 
my own biases, which I'm sure they are absolutely there, but for the rest of the world and how they treat my child, if they perceive my child to be male or female and the way they treat them, um, I think that makes a huge difference. And I wanted my kid to be able to have the best chances of like being able to live an authentic life to them without people putting them in this box, which is why I'm refusing to let people know like what genitals my child had when they were born, which is actually what people are asking when they ask you if you have a boy or girl. And when you think about it that way, it's like, that's absurd. That's an absurd question to ask a stranger. Um, but anyway, a bit of a tangent. Um, I, I agree that the way that people are socialized, we often, you know, have this rough and tumble play that's encouraged with male child. And, um, and if we take that energy and we put into a, a female child and like the tickling fights and all of that, and it's like, oh, we're just playing around, you know, like I've seen that. I've seen people do that when like little girls will scream and say no. And it's like, oh, you're just, you know, he's just playing around. He's just having fun. He's just, he likes you. That's why he's teasing you. Like all those mm -hmm. kind of messages start like in preschool, if even earlier yeah. than that. And so I think sometimes taking away some of that gendered messaging, even if you don't go as radical as like having everybody be um, ungendered or not assigned, just taking away some of those societal messages about what boys and girls are allowed to do and who's allowed to push whose boundaries and all those things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think if you would, if you don't mind sharing, I'd be really interested to hear some of the pushback that you've had from making such a, like, I guess, I guess I could say unconventional decision mm -hmm. about how you're raising your child because it sounds like you have really thought it through and like really have um, you you know what values you're trying to instill and promote and those all sound like very intentional but um, since it is International Women's Day just talking about what it means to like assign someone to be a woman from birth and and raise them in that way and then what it means to maybe in an ideal world like not having not assigning gender ever would be uh, make everything simpler, but that's not the world we live in. It doesn't make everything simpler and sort of like weighing those different factors of like, is it about how easy my child's life is going to be? Is it about other values that I have? Yeah, I think for me, uh, it came down to that. I have a lot of friends, lovers, um, community members, uh, clients who are trans, who are non-binary, who told me, you know, if I ever had a kid, this is the choice I would make because when I was a child, it was torture for me or it was really uncomfortable for me or I just wish it would have been different. I wish I would have been able to be who I was. And hearing that over and over again from people who live that experience, I'm like, I don't know how my child is going to grow up. So I might as well do like the least amount of putting them in a box as possible. And I'm not like anti like, oh, no, you're grabbing a doll. You can't do that. Like, I just let my kid explore many things. Um and so I think just hearing from other people's experience how how challenging that was, especially for people who, since it's International Women's Day, I think for people who have been socialized as women, just the kind of messages we got were really hard to, it's like you have to do all this overcoming later on in life in your 20s and 30s. If you're lucky, you're doing it in your 20s. I think a lot of people are like, not until they're like, 40 or older that they're like, oh, I don't have to just do things for everybody else. I'm allowed to say no to emotional labor. 
I, I don't have to serve others constantly and I don't have to feel guilt about taking time for me. But like, that's certainly stuff that I grew up with, even with a mom who was not like, you're a girl, you do this. I did still get a lot of that message from society where it was like, I had to kind of tone it down with certain things or act a certain way. And that just wears on a person after a while. And we see how that plays out in bigger ways. I mean, like, look at Elizabeth Warren, right? Like, this was a very incredibly qualified candidate who, um, you know, I have my beef with every political candidate, and I had some beefs with her as well. But there were so many things that I loved about her. I thought she was likable and brilliant. And she just got the short end of the stick. And everybody's like, it's because of this and that. And I'm like, um, it's let's all look at the huge factor here. It's because of misogyny. Misogyny will wear on a person and not most of us cannot be that strong that we can like stand in the spotlight every day and have people, you know, put snake emojis on our Instagram and like talk smack to us on the internet and like bring us down and then tell us they're not doing it because of our gender. They're doing it because of some other reason. And so then it's like a giant gaslighting, Mm -hmm. you know? Now I just like went too far. Went way out no, there. I love it because it is all connected. It is totally. But I guess sort of bringing it back to like sex ed, which is our focus for this hour. <laughs> Although we can talk about politics all you want to. Um, like I guess how like why does sex ed need to be included in like this discussion around like International Women's Day specifically, and then like what we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, unfortunately, when it comes to uh, teaching about bodies, and this is anything from, you know, what they get elementary school to what they get in med school, um, sort of the male body or folks with penises are taught as the default. And then women are sort of taught as a a version of that. So it's sort of taught in opposition, like, okay, you have this and oh, you have this other thing. Um, And what that often leads to is um, bad science, incomplete information. You know, when they're when they're doing studies, um, even studies on something as basic as you know how a a painkiller is going to affect people, they're usually all tested on men, and then we don't know how women are going to respond to that. And that has even happened with medications that's specifically around sexuality, um, which is baffling to me. And part of this then means that when women are seeking out um, any kind of support from mental health to um, medical doctors, the professionals they're seeing might actually not know how their bodies work. There's a big class action lawsuit right now about um, cosmetic surgery that was done on people's genitals by cosmetic surgeons who didn't know how the genitals they were operating on functioned and caused a lot of damage. Um, so... I mean, it, it has huge implications in sex ed that that we just don't aren't studying how women's bodies work. And so they aren't being taught that. And the systems that are meant to um, protect and help them are also um, not equipped to do those jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think also something kind of different is that I believe that m- many of us are sexual beings by nature And it is a place where a lot of us hold power and energy. 
And if that is constantly being dampened or told that it needs to be for someone else, it makes it hard for us to show up in our power, in our authenticity. Um, I think that some people feel like maybe it's their only source of power um, because they're not taught how to channel that sexuality into anything like art or music or being powerful in many ways. They're kind of just taught like you have this one power and it's for a man, for a man's pleasure. And that's when you're allowed to tap into it, but only with him and only in these certain ways. And it's so limiting to not just one's sexuality and their exploration, but to their entire lives and how they feel about themselves, their confidence, what they think they can accomplish in the world. So I think it's incredibly important for people to have sex education and sexual empowerment because it can change their entire life's trajectory if they are empowered, if they are aware, if they're educated. We know that educating women globally is one of the best things we can do for our entire world. We've seen it like across the world when we give women resources, how much communities improve in every way, really. And so I think that that's just another resource that we could give women to empower them globally. So a lot of the young people that that do need those resources the most aren't going to be raised in a in a very sex positive way or already haven't been. Um, so what resources are available to find this education when like so, if someone didn't get it in school, uh, this could be a chance for you to talk about like the specific types of education that you're working on right now or just what you think is the most useful or the most needed. When I hear from young people online that are asking for resources, I usually send folks um, to Scarletine, the Scarletine website, or to Planned Parenthood for resources. Um, those are great places for folks. Um, and yeah, once people are adults, they're if they're lucky enough to live in Portland, there are a lot of options. Any of the classes at Sheepop are fantastic options. Um, there's a place in town called Sobrosa where I teach once a month and where a lot of other awesome folks teach. Um, so there are, there are resources you can find in town once once you're an adult, luckily. Yeah, I think it's a lot harder for people under the age of 18 to find resources other than online or going to their local library. Um, but online is the most accessible for the most people. So having a website like Scarletine, I think, is really important. And another place I'll send young people is Ojoy Sex Toy, mm -hmm. which is... Definitely, like, it's more, it's comics. Um, so it's, like, comic book oriented, which is really good for people who are more visual learners because then there's all of the infographics and, and the little illustrations and stuff, which maybe feels a bit more approachable to some people than just reading big things of texts. And there are people that can be followed on Instagram. So if someone's on Instagram, like a 16-year-old, um, and they follow a lot of sex educators, that could be a good way of getting some more information too, is just following posts from people like me or people like Stella or other educators that are out there because they're just like little, you know, bite-sized, easy to understand. And oftentimes there are links to more resources there. So I think that social media can be used for good, although it's complicated because Platforms like Instagram and Facebook are actually designed to be very sex negative. So it's hard to be on the internet as a sex educator, especially on those social media platforms and educating people well. You have to be really careful about how you do it 
editing certain words out, being careful with hashtags and all that. So it's getting harder and harder to find, unfortunately. Mm, That's interesting. I'm a millennial and a lot of my (laughs) friends are too. So I think a lot of the ways that I'm continuing my my sex education in life is like following certain, certain Instagram pages. Mm-hmm. That's definitely something I've noticed, like pages will get shadow banned and all yeah. that stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I'm kind of just wondering if you have an opinion on, I think you touched on this a little bit, but like using Instagram specifically as like a way to gain that knowledge as a and like and excuse yourself from maybe going to classes or reading books or like using some other type of of learning just because Instagram is so like accessible. I think one of the tricky things is, you know, and I, I got asked this earlier this week by some of the students about whether I thought the availability of information online right now was a good thing or a bad thing. And the answer has to be that it's complicated. You know, I am old enough that I came of age pre-internet. You know, I didn't have internet porn or scarletine or any of that. You know, by the time I was 17, I had AOL chat rooms. Like, that was it. (laughs) Um, And that's a whole nother story. Um, So now there's a lot of information available, but people are not necessarily learning the skills of discernment. And we certainly have Mm -hmm. seen this in politics as well. Yes, there's a lot of information available, but how do you know what's accurate. So from politics to sex, you know, you're picking someone to follow who you like for some reason, who has a message you appreciate. But if you're starting from zero, how do you know if that's the right information? Mm -hmm. Um, So I do think it's important to not just have Instagram or not just have one account or not just have one book. Um, You sort of need to cross-reference enough that you see that what somebody is saying seems supported. Um, and, and sort of see what they're coming from, see if there's an agenda there that that might not align with what your particular outlook or needs are. Yeah, that's a really important point, I think, because I think Instagram would be a great place for people to start getting ideas like, oh, I noticed this sex educator who I'm following is posting this particular topic all week. And this is something I have never explored before. And so they read that and then they, you know, follow some of the hashtags or follow some of the other accounts that are tagged and and can start doing the cross-referencing. But I think at some point, it's it really has to get away from the internet and be face-to-face. And ideally, classes, workshops are great because you can ask questions, you can uh, you know, be in a room with people. And oftentimes you can practice things like communication skills and all that before you're actually with a partner doing that. But it's hard. And I think that Some of the more progressive colleges are bringing people in and having sex week and sex ed week. And that's really, really important. So I hope to see more schools doing that, because even if that's too late, it's better late than never. And if people have been getting their information online for a while and they don't know what's true and what isn't, they can at least have maybe a list of questions that they can bring and ask a sex educator or they can go look it up in books and see like how true the things are that are being said online. But it takes an extra bit of work, which is why most people don't do it in politics or in sex ed. Mm-hmm. People are just like, eh, it's too much work. I was going to believe <laughs> the thing that resonates for me personally. Yeah. I mean, in general, I'm I'm not really a fan of any kind of gatekeeping. I appreciate that social media is allowing more and more educa- educators to have a voice and to get their messages out there. And also that means that any kind of message can get out there. And mm-hmm. and yeah, it's really difficult to tell where that's coming from. You can find um, statistics to back up just about any point you're trying to make. 
Yeah, and it's important to note that sex educator isn't like um, the word therapist, which a therapist, if you're going to call yourself like a, a psychologist or a therapist, like there are licenses you have to get. There are like if you're going to be a psychologist, you have to be able to have, you know, a PhD or a PsyD in order to use that word for yourself. Sex educator, anybody can use that. Like, really, it could just be some random person on the internet who's interested in sex. And they'll be like, I'm a sex educator. And so it's hard to tell, like, who's out there doing their research and who's just, like, mm -hmm. some self-described guru. Yeah, it's really tricky. I always tell people you should look at somebody's background, look at what their, their training, their schooling, their credentials are, while at the same time, you know, occasionally being skeptical of credentials. Because there are plenty of people out there who have a therapist license and... They don't know anything about sex or sexuality. That's not a requirement in, in therapy programs, and they can have bad information. So you need to look at what someone's training is and where they're coming from. And also letters after their name doesn't necessarily mean that it's good information. Yeah, it so doesn't. I regularly will go and teach trainings to um, healthcare professionals, mm -hmm. and often those are my most stubborn audiences. Mm -hmm. People who are like, I don't need to know this information. I'm a doctor. And I'm like, that's exactly why you need to know this information. Because people look to you as being the like source of knowledge and like the person with the letters after your name. And people, you know, on the commercials, people be like, ask your doctor about blah, blah, blah. But the doctors will know about certain things. And then you start talking to them about sex and they're like, um, let's change the topic. Let's get back to your mm -hmm. blood pressure. You know, like doctors are still people and they still have all of their own stuff that they need to unpack and all of their own baggage around sexuality. And so like doctors aren't necessarily the be all end all for that. They need to get educated as well. Yeah. Absolutely. I get clients in my office all the time who are telling me, you know, something like they've given birth or they are, you know, had had surgery to have their prostates removed or, you know, these really serious life events that affect their body's functioning. And their doctors haven't said a single thing about how that's going to affect their sex lives, affect pleasure. Um, they are not starting those conversations. And when you start the conversation, they often don't have the answers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. it, it makes me feel a little... A little hopeless sometimes to think that like if my doctor is not going to start those conversations with me or if I can't start those conversations with my doctor, then like who who am I going to talk to about that? Yeah. And like maybe the answer is like people like you who do the work that you're doing. But I think it's also, as we were saying, like super vital for for medical professionals to be yeah. mentioning those things when they do come up, like even just in the context of like contraception methods, like mm -hmm. like doctors don't like I've had this experience and pretty much all of my friends who use hormonal contraception have had this experience too where they've went in with questions doctor gave them something didn't tell them a bunch of side effects and they were unhappy with it yeah and when and when they went in to question their like some medical professional about it they would just be like oh yeah those are some possible side effects people have varying experiences mm -hmm. you never know yeah they're not getting that i never got that and you know with my personal life choosing contraception or um if you have any mental health issues i've spent years having runarounds with with doctors trying to find antidepressants anti-anxiety meds that won't have you know crippling effects on my sex life um, and it took me a very long time to find anyone who was equipped to have that conversation. Yep. What challenges have you each faced in your careers as educators? I'm thinking especially given this perception that everything can be found online and also this conception of 
medical degrees equating to experts on on the body and the things we were just discussing. Does that has that intersected with any specific challenges in your careers or have they been separate? Well, I will say that even though there are many women in the field of sex education, it is actually one of the areas where there are more women than men. It doesn't mean that the people who are making the most money in the field are the women. It's mm. still the men, and usually the cisgender white men still are the ones who are making the most money in the field of sex ed, um, even though it is a dominated by women field. Um, so that's always been really interesting to me. And I don't know, maybe Stella has more to say about that. I 100% agree with that. Yeah, <laughs> I share your frustrations. Yeah. And part of it, too, I think, is because of what we were talking about earlier, um, empowering women mm -hmm. and telling them that they, you know, can ask for what they want and have confidence. And so it means so many of us who are really knowledgeable and really passionate are just not asking for as much. Our, mm -hmm. our rates are not as high as some of these guys who feel absolutely entitled to being like, um, it's $1,500 if you want to get me in your college. And I'm like, I'll do it for 200. I love educating the youth. And I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, no, like, because mm -hmm. I don't want to, I don't want to sell myself short. Um, but that's a, that's a thing I think of the way I was socialized is like, mm -hmm. I just want to be helpful. So I'll do it for less money because it's important to get the message out. And the end, some of the guys in the field are like, absolutely not. I will not show up for less than this amount. Mm -hmm. And that's real. Yeah. That the self-promotion piece and the confidence and self-worth piece around that, I think is incredibly gendered more than once. I've had people sort of nudge me, remind me like at the end of a class, like you should say you have a book. You should say anything whatsoever about yourself. I was running an event on stage and was reminded at uh, intermission that I hadn't even said my name. Uh, yeah, it is really hard. You know, for most of us, uh, sex educators, coaches, authors, it it is all freelance. And to make that work has to be a constant hustle, which means self-promotion. So if you have sort of issues getting out there and shouting about how great you are or asking for more money, more money, which I absolutely have those issues, it is um, a really awkward intersection and it makes it a, a harder way to make a living. Mm -hmm. We have a little time left, so I'm wondering if – I do have a few more questions, but I want to give you space to bring up any topics that you might have wanted to to bring to the table today. We've covered some good ones so far. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I had one I, I wrote down when I was thinking about um, what I wanted to hear from you, AJ. And you talked about this a tiny bit, but I'm wondering sort of in your moments when you've been teaching, um, what are some of the aha moments you've seen students or – clients or attendees have in front of you that have kind of blown your mind? Well, this is, there's one that comes to mind instantly, which is I have a class about butts. Um, and at the beginning, because like, that's an area of the body that's very taboo to discuss. And in our mm -hmm. culture, like people hold a lot of shame around it. Mm -hmm. And so within my first few minutes of the class, we talk about some myths um, related to that and put those up there. And along the way, I'm making a lot of jokes about it and kind of disarming people. And I can just feel the tension melt from the room. And so for me, like an aha moment was humor is so important. Yeah. Humor is like one of my main tools that I use in all of life, but definitely in sex ed, um, just the right 
place jokes. And it's not like I'm making a bunch of like fart jokes or something up there in front of the room. Like I'm still very professional, I hope. (laughs) But, you know, like I am definitely like acknowledging the things that are making people uncomfortable in a way that they're like, oh, that's totally me. Oh, it's all of you too. Okay, we can breathe now. We're like on the same page. And it just helps people by the end of that class. Everyone's like raising their hands and they're like, hey, I've got a question about my hemorrhoids. I got one. His name's Phil. You know, they're just like really (laughs) open about their lives. And I'm like, okay, this is drastically different from the beginning of the classroom. And I absolutely think that the humor is the reason why it really helps get rid of some of the tension around things and put people in a place where they're more comfortable asking questions and talking about some of the hard topics. Mm-hmm. I want to know if you've had some aha moments. Yeah, I definitely think the humor piece is huge because, yeah, you you walk into a room and there'll be, you know, 30 people sort of wide-eyed and terrified staring at you, not sure what's going to happen. And I don't consider myself a particularly funny person, but, you know, you do this long enough and you pick up those things where you can sort of break the tension in the room. Mostly I just make a fool of myself and tell my most embarrassing stories because then it's easier for other people to to say something embarrassing. But that's huge. And this delicate line to walk of it's not making light of anyone's fears or feelings. It's not saying this isn't a serious topic and also it can be silly at the same time mm-hmm. and encouraging people to to laugh when they're going home and doing whatever the stuff is that we're teaching to break some of that tension with their partners as well yeah. Um, so yeah yeah like that's something that's missing from sex ed is that sex is fun it can it can totally be fun, turns yeah. out. And so like having fun in the classes where you're learning about sex is certainly a good thing to include to kind of give people those skills and associate the two. Um, but yeah, it's so surprising to me. Like, I mean, it's not surprising because of our culture. It's completely unshocking how much people how serious people are about sex. Mm-hmm. But I think being able to have a sense of humor around it really helps for when things are awkward, you know, because that's it's when you are taking one person or multiple people and putting them together and getting naked and being really vulnerable with your emotions and your bodies. Like, of course, that could be something that would bring up a lot of awkward feelings and like nervousness and being able to laugh about that. And uh, acknowledge it is humongous. Mm -hmm. You know, something that this is totally like it's going back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier when you were talking about the clitoral complex Mm -hmm. and how people don't know about that yet. Have you seen that show Sex Education on Netflix? Just the first season. So I think it's a pretty good show. Like it's the sex ed. They it's, you know, every once in a while I'm like, that's not accurate. But most of it's pretty good. And I think overall what they're doing is, is pretty good. Um, maybe it's just because I have a crush on Jillian Anderson. But anyway, um, Who doesn't? in the right in the second season, she's doing a workshop for a group of women and she's trying to talk about sexual pleasure. And she has this like model, like this big plastic model. Um, and someone she gets like distracted and get, goes downstairs. And so someone goes up to the model and they just pull the um, clitoris out mm-hmm. like it's a button And they all giggle about it. And I'm like, that's not what it looks like. It doesn't just look like a little button. Like in this show, they're even showing it like that. And then she's supposed to be this like world renowned sex educator. And I was like, oh, that was a miss 
for y'all. So, you know, if you're listening out there, the makers of Sex Education on Netflix, <laughs> next season, maybe acknowledge that and, and put put it in there. Maybe hire us as consultants. Yes, hire us as consultants <laughs> and get a new a new model to use for the show if you really want to actually educate people and not just simply entertain them. Yeah. Yeah, the, the sort of pop culture stuff is such a mixed bag. I get so excited when when something is mentioned, you know, and then I get a million questions about it. So at least it's getting things in the public eye, but it's almost never accurate. So again, mm-hmm. it's that complicated mixed bag. Like, at least we're talking about it. But like, you need to do more research than that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Are there any um, classes in particular that you've uh, keeping it, you know, PG for daytime radio. I know we can't be too descriptive about everything that you teach, but um, are there any sort of like formats or like topics that you get that kind of reaction from folks where they're like, oh, this is like like relief or 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 happiness or or humor or things like that? I think the the first class that I developed when I finished my intimacy educator training um, is called Mapping the Vulva. And it's it's the first class that I developed. And I think it is still my favorite and, and maybe my most popular, that one and its variations. Um, and every time I teach it, there is somebody who has an aha moment realizing how a body works. Um, in my Shebop class, once I had someone start crying um, and they said it's because they, they suddenly realized they weren't broken. And you'll hear that story mm-hmm. from anybody who is a sex educator. Somebody has had that moment in one of mm-hmm. their classes um, because we don't know how bodies are supposed to look or how to, they're supposed to function. So we just assume that we're aberrant in some way. Um, I, One of the times I taught that class, there was um, an 18-year-old who actually stood up angrily that um, and asked why they weren't getting that in school, why they hadn't had that. They had just graduated from high school and they were pissed that that wasn't part of the curriculum. Um, and I also had a 60 year old woman who stood up pissed, um, saying, you know, she'd had three kids. She'd never gotten this from her doctor. She didn't know any of this. Um, so yeah, everything from laughter to tears to anger, um, that people don't already know how bodies work, whether it's their body, a partner's body, um, that pe- that has a huge emotional impact for folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of my most memorable classes that I taught was with Jesse Fresh, who's another sex educator here in town, that was about um, sex during postpartum and early parenthood and pregnancy. So it kind of encompassed everything. And that was when I was like right in the thick of my postpartum healing and really struggling with it. And I was sitting there thinking, if I, as a sex educator who has all of this knowledge, who's teaching, like who's developing this workshop to teach other people, am struggling with this, am really having a hard time with my self-esteem about it, like how is anybody else doing this? This is so hard. And like you're supposed to be able to just like balance that while you're also a new parent. But like nobody told me that after I gave birth, that it was going to change the entire inside of my vagina. Um, You know, I mean, I I assumed, like, obviously, it's a thing to go through. And so something will be different. But I didn't know that it could change the entire anatomy around. It could change how I experience pleasure. It could change how I want to be touched. And nobody told me that. And there's always this myth, too, that, like, after you give birth, that, like, everything's going to be so much more wide open. And um, so I was like, woohoo, cool. 
nope, that's not necessarily true for everyone. Some people actually find they have chronic tightness after trying to heal and things are more painful beyond that six weeks that they give you. And they just tell you six weeks, go back to sex, you're fine, which is just not true for everyone. I'm 20 months later and I'm just now starting to get my groove back. And so for me, like developing that class was really important because it helped me work through some of my own stuff and it made me feel like I was doing really important work getting that information out to other people because I know that if I didn't have the information, if I wasn't hearing it from my doctors or anybody else, certainly other people weren't. People are just out there afraid to talk about it. Yeah. And I think that vulnerability is one of the most important things we can do. I think that's what helps people connect to us. If we just say we're an expert, we have it all figured out, and we're just going to tell you information, that creates a lot of distance. But when we can say, like, I'm still working on this, I'm still figuring out, and it's hard, like that creates a connection. And, and people can, can, again, feel sort of less broken, feel less bad that they don't have it all figured out. Because even people whose job this is, mm -hmm. don't magically have all of the body and sex things figured out. Absolutely true. I've actually noticed that my posts on Instagram that have the highest engagement of number of likes and comments are the ones where I'm vulnerable mm -hmm. and where I admit that, like, I don't have the answers. I'm struggling. I'm still trying to figure it out. If I get any good advice, I'll pass it along. If I find out some new info, like, I'd love to share it with you all. And I try to crowdsource and get other people to share what their experiences are just talking about it. Those are mm -hmm. the ones that get the most engagement, not the ones where I'm like, Hey, super confident and sexy over here. Let me tell you what's the scoop. Listen to me, you know, because mm -hmm. I think some people are looking for that. But most people are like, how do I human mm -hmm. fellow human who maybe has a little bit more information than me? And bringing that back around to gender, it is so complicated, you know, as a couple of folks who present femme a lot of the time to find that balance in public persona of being vulnerable enough for people to connect, but not so vulnerable that you're sort of put in a box where you're not seen as an expert and balancing like, well, what kind of, of presentation is um, professional, but it's like not intimidating and how do you still look approachable? And it's just this sort of impossible fine line of presentation where there's kind of no right answers. There's no way to do femininity right yeah oh my gosh one time after a workshop i had somebody come up to me i i assume they were a married couple um and the woman in the couple was like i'm so glad that you're really funny and because when i first walked in like you looked too sexy and mm -hmm. i was like my husband's not even going to pay attention to what's being said by you because he's just going to be watching you being a woman talking about sex the whole time mm -hmm. and i didn't know how to take it i was just like ah, hope Hope he listened. But I'm like, what do I, how do I unpack that in this like after class thing where she's like, you're too sexy, but I'm glad you're also funny. And it's like, I had to be this perfect blend that was like exactly like just the right amount of intimidating and sexy and knowledgeable. And that's not just for sex educators. I think that's for any woman who gets on a microphone. Mm -hmm. Like you have to be perfect to be able to be liked. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, navigating, I would imagine in, in many workplaces, many platforms, navigating, presenting as femme or like having people project gender onto your body and and sort of working with that to try to still accomplish your goals. You know, mm -hmm. you can't really just ignore it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you can, 
And that's like one way to do it. But I think for most people find that that's not the most effective way and they have to, you know, compensate for certain things or, or call out certain things or communicate in ways that are more coded. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's just a really relatable experience for a lot of not just professional women, even even that's what I said. Yeah. For- I mean, it comes around to what AJ said earlier about sort of finding your power in it. Like if this is all going to be projected onto you. Is there a way that you can own it? Is there a way you can use it to your advantage? Mm-hmm. While still being authentic and vulnerable and, you know, yeah. everything at once. Woo-hoo. Um, I know we've talked about how gender and being female or femme presenting has often been construed as sort of like less important in sex ed in a way. But I think it's also important to get into how often even in our general sex education is like highly heteronormative and leaves Mm -hmm. out every gender in the conversation of how like they interact beyond like quote unquote traditional idea of cis male and cis female sex. Um, And just like, how is that? Yeah. Like how is that unpacked in, in the field of sex ed? I think people who are, are training today um, or even sort of our generation, I, I think a lot of us are have gotten beyond that. Um, a lot of venues will even require that you're um, presenting information in a, a gender neutral way. Um, when I've done classes um, for Reed College or Evergreen State, I've even been told by the university that a third of the students identify as something other than cisgender and have been asked that all of the information be presented in a gender neutral way. Um, it's the default, you know, when I teach around town that if if a particular body part is relevant, I will use the body part word. Um, so if I'm talking about penises, I'll say this is for folks who have penises rather than for men um, and making sure that if there are variations there that that's covered as well. So I think that that is slowly becoming the norm. I think we sort of see in in certain sex ed circles um, being a little bit ahead of the curve of what the sort of the wider culture has adopted. Um, but there's certainly a longer way to go with that. And, you know, there are some spaces where I teach a class and, you know, ask people to go around and introduce themselves and say their pronouns and I get blank looks and people don't know what that is. Um, so it definitely changes regionally and, and generationally. Um, but when I am sort of working with younger folks or working in colleges, I do have some hope for the future because it seems like these things are shifting rapidly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I try to queer up every topic that I teach, no matter what. And some people are annoyed by it, but most people, I think, really deeply appreciate it. Like with my fellatio class, people are going to assume it's going to be a really like cis heteronormative class, but no, like it isn't. And I use the words giver and receiver every single mm-hmm. time. Um, and that is more real. It opens it up for more people. And then if somebody is in a relationship that's cis and heteronormative, then they're still included and they can still, when they're hearing this, they can put themselves and their partners right into that. But then it's not just for them. You know, it's for everybody. And I see more and more sex educators being as inclusive as possible um, with gender and Um, orientation, all of that, just trying to make sure that everybody gets the information. And I think that helps people have better sex because this model of like PV sex, penis and vagina sex as the only 
kind that is uh, available to people is so mm-hmm. limiting for so many people for so many reasons. And then people are like, well, if I can't do that, I guess I can't do anything. And it's like, no, no, honey, you've got so many options. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being able to include all of those options is one of my favorite parts of, of my classes going beyond what people traditionally think of as sex. And the the gender and the genitals actually are, I think, a lot less important than people think in any of our classes, even in something that is, you know, specifically about fellatio. More than half of that class is probably about the talking and the feelings and the dynamics. And all of that is relevant to everybody, regardless of what they have in their pants. Absolutely. Yeah, it's funny because people will be like, in, in your 10 years in sex ed, what's like the biggest takeaway for what can give a good sex life? And I'm like, the way you're saying that, I know you want me to give you some juicy tidbit, but I'm going to tell you it's communication, mm-hmm. which is, you know, like communication can be absolutely juicy, but that's probably not the answer you want. But it's the 100% truth. I mean, Stella teaches a great class about communication in the bedroom, which is one that I think it's funny because we'll have at Shebop like lists, you know, we'll have like about 28 to 32 people per class as a full class. And we'll have lists for some of these classes that are like super duper long for like the really flashy classes. And the communication one fills up, but the wait list is always a little bit shorter. And I'm just like, y'all should be circling the block trying to get into this class because this is the one you need before or in addition to all of the other ones. But it just isn't as flashy, the communication. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't sound as sexy. And you're right. People are always asking us, like, what is the one tip? They're trying to get some secret move out of us that will save them from ever actually having to have a conversation. <laughs> and yeah, the secret move is talking. Yep. Nobody wants to hear that. No, they sure don't. <laughs> but that's what it is. It's interesting that people want to be like, find out information that'll excuse them from being vulnerable. It's like, mm-hmm. how can I avoid that? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, the opposite. It's like, how can I avoid vu- vulnerability? It's like, oh, no, you don't get to. You have to be vulnerable, and that's how your sex will be better. Mm-hmm. Yep. We're almost out of time. Is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have? Anything you have coming up or ways that people can find you? People could find me on amoryjane.com. That'd be a great way to see what I have coming up. It's all listed underneath my events there. And I would love to tell people about Whoopi, a sex positive variety show, which is a variety show that we do um, every few months here around town. We're at the Star Theater now. And the next one is on April 10th. Um, It's a sex positive variety show, which means that all of the acts are going to be about empowerment, body positivity, have elements of human sexuality, And it's a really cool show. Stella's been in it a few times. I perform occasionally and I host as well as being the creator. But I would recommend people check that out. They can do that on whoopee.live or go on to the Star Theater website to find tickets. How about you, Stella? Um, Well, whoopee is always a good time. People should definitely go to that. Um, I have um, a couple of classes coming up at Shebop. I think this month's class on hookups is already sold out. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find me on my website, stellaharris.net. I have my class listings there. Um, I'm also on uh, Instagram uh, at Stella Harris Erotica. So those are great places to find me. Um, I'm doing a show called Dating Pool, the game show. Our next one will be in June. So stay tuned for info about that. Um, yeah, but our, our websites are probably the best way to figure out what we're doing next. Yeah. Oh, and you have a book coming out. When is that coming out? 
Well, so my my draft is due to the publisher at the end of this month. So that's Ooh. all I'm doing for the rest of this month. And given how the traditional publishing process works, I'm guessing very early next year. Awesome. But I will do my best to actually promote on the internet when I have final dates. I'm so excited about that because I have only ever read one book on threesomes and it was garbage. So <laughs> there need to be more, more yeah, books on that topic. Given how often that's a question we get, there's surprisingly little literature on it. Yep. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedules to be here with us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You've been listening to Sex Positivity and What You Missed in Sex Ed as part of Amplify Women on X-Ray FM, a celebration of International Women's Day. I'm your host, Miranda Selinger of X-Ray FM, and we've been talking with sex educators Stella Harris and Amory Jane.